Last week we began our look into Hezekiah. That's okay. I can't get my I can't get it up, so I can't get my my screen to come up there. So you're going to have to look at me today. I'm sorry. Can't look at the pretty picture either anymore right now. I'm sorry. But we talked about Hezekiah and how he came and he clean, cleansed the temple and he stopped all the worship that was bad, the, the, the idolatrous worship, and he, and he destroyed the, the bronze serpent that Moses had. And then the Assyrians came and said, we are going to siege Jerusalem and destroy it. And we had the Rabshakeh come and give Hezekiah's envoy the message from Sennacherib. And in 2 Kings 18, verse 19, the Rabshakeh said, and this is a little bit of review, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose highest places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you two thousand horses if you are able to part if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen. Moreover, it is without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it. And the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. That was the message that was given to Hezekiah. And we talked about that quite a bit last week. And then we see in verse in Second Kings chapter 19 we saw <clears throat> Hezekiah's response or we see Hezekiah's response we started in on this real quickly verse 19 chapter 19 verse 1 as soon as Hezekiah heard it and he heard it from his envoys who then told told him this is what Sennacherib said and he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord and he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. So they went, and they showed mourning, and they went to Isaiah. They said, we need, we need some guidance here. And the thing that really upset Hezekiah was that God was being mocked. God was being treated with uh, blasphemy. And we should have a similar feel 
when God is mocked and blasphemed. And I have not, I don't watch the Grammys, okay? But I've watched a couple of the uh, things that came out of it where people have talked about it, Christian people have talked about it. And if you want to see God mocked, he was mocked in those Grammys. Um, and it was very satanic, some of it. And there's even some, I guess there's been some kind of uproar about some of that because it was so blatantly satanic. Um, the other thing I thought about when that happened is a book I read 40 years ago by Francis Schaeffer. He said, if you want to know where a society is going, look at the arts and look at education. And that's where we're heading. It, we're, the society just follows them. Now, that's a scary thought. And he's right. I mean, you can go, go look at that from, you know, all the way through the history of Europe or the United States, and you can see where the arts and where education goes. They're just ahead of the curve of society. And so this is where the arts are going. And they've been going that direction for years. I uh, have a video series at home that is not fun to watch. It's called Hell's Bells, but it talks about the, the demonic culture, really, that started in the music industry back with Aleister Crowley a long time ago, who was a Satan worshiper. And all these people follow him. And many of the lyrics of the songs come from things that he said. Not all of them, but enough. But that's where our society is going. God is being mocked. And we should, we should have a similar idea that Hezekiah had. He tore his clothes and covered, him helpless, covered himself with sackcloth. And he sought the prophet of God. Well, we can seek the prophet of God, too, by looking at God's word and seeing what he has to say. So after he sought that, let's go to verse 4 of, Isaiah, of, of 2 Kings 19. And we see hope that was expressed. And all this, I mean, think about this. You had hundreds, uh, you know, over 185,000 uh, people in the army surrounding the town saying that they're going to destroy you. They've destroyed everybody else in their path. They're an extremely cruel people. And they come up to you and say, we're going to wipe you out. There would be a little bit of angst and it would look very like no hope. The future is all bleak. But in verse 4 we see some hope. Hope is expressed. Hezekiah said, It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Syria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So it may be that the Lord has heard the words, and he will rebuke the Rabshakeh in Sennacherib. Now, for sure, and we've talked about this in prior weeks, one of the reasons that I that Judah 
and Israel before that or the northern kingdom got in trouble is that they they stopped worshiping God. They did all kinds of bad stuff. But one of the truly and great remarkable things about God is his desire and his willingness to forgive even our sinful bonehead actions. And yeah, I think we can use the word bonehead. Sometimes we just do stupid stuff. But God forgives. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just or righteous. God is righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The incredibly deep and profound love of God is constantly demonstrated in our lives with His constant forgiveness. And Hezekiah recognized to Isaiah the living God. And it's it's Hezekiah's hope that God will rebuke and punish Assyria for their words of blasphemy in their attack upon Judah. What was worse, their attack on Judah or their blasphemy? Well, their blasphemy was worse. And as I was looking, I mean, there's no other help available. Where else could Hezekiah turn? He tried to turn to Egypt, which wasn't good. And God told him not to do that. But there's no other help available. And I got thinking, why is it, and I know why, but this is kind of a rhetorical question. Why is it that often our turning to God is only we have tried everything we can think of and it didn't work? And then we go, okay, well, let's turn to God. We need to get, and I need to get into the mindset that God is not a last resort. He is a first resort. But, you know, we are a stubborn people, but we can learn that. Turn to God first. Then in verse 5 of 2 Kings 19, we go on. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, This had to feel good when they heard this. Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. That means that God heard it too. Okay, God knew what was going on. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own man, and I will make him fall by the sword, in his own land. So Isaiah is authoritative in his response, and he's encouraging in his response. And it's not Isaiah's response, it's God's response that he gave to Isaiah. The encouraging part is that Hezekiah and the people don't need to fear all the statements and the threats from Sennacherib. He had taunted God. And the blaspheming of Assyria will cause God to act. You know, men throughout history and today, we talked about this a second ago, have blasphemed God and think that they have gotten away with it. They think that because there is not an immediate response, there's not going to be any consequences. But there is no doubt about it. God does not take lightly to blasphemy and he will act at the appropriate time. And all we have to do is read what's going to happen 
when Christ comes back. Now, for some reason, we're told here that Sennacherib will return to Nineveh, and there he will meet his end. Those looking on the outside would probably not see the working of God in the return trip, but it was the working of God. Now, one additional point needs to be looked at. In verse 7, I will put a spirit in him so he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So that group's going to die by the sword when he goes home. The death of Sennacherib took place 20 years later. It wasn't next week or next month. He did not come back and and destroy Jerusalem as he boasted he would do when he left. He said, I'm going to come back and get you guys. 20 years. You know, one thing that we're really like in our society is immediacy, isn't it? Fast food. Do I need to say anything else? (laughs) You know, I wait in line five minutes at McDonald's and, hey, come on. You know, boom. We love immediacy. We take expectations of immediacy also, and we need to be careful here that we don't take them into our relationship with God. We need to understand that God is not concerned with immediacy. He will respond to our need in his time, not our wished time. I like that statement, Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. You know, that's that's what we think. 20 years. 20 years later. We go on, starting in verse 8. Now the, that, the, the Rabshakeh left. And that was what we covered last week. And then he comes back in verse 8. Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting with Libna. For he heard that the king had left Lachish. So Assyria kind of turned their army and focused somewhere else. Now the king heard concerning Tiraka, king of Cush. Behold, he has set out to fight against you. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you will speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And you shall be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Rezef, and the people of Eden who are in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad and the king of the city of Shepharavim and the king of Hena and the king of Iva? So what happened to all these people? I wiped them out. I'm coming back. So, while the Rabshakeh was speaking to the envoy of Hezekiah, Sennacherib continued with his attack on the land. He was fighting all these other cities. He was fighting against Libna, a city of refuge, which indicates he was going north of Jerusalem. At the same time, he hears that 
Tiraka of Ethiopia, or Cush, was coming to fight him. And so if that was true, it would concern Sennacherib because to go south to meet the Ethiopians, if he did that, he would leave his rear exposed from tax down from Jerusalem, which was north of Ethiopia. And so he sends this next message to Hezekiah. In other words, don't think that just because I'm doing this, all this other stuff that this is getting you off the hook. But instead of uh, you know th- this next message starting in verse 10, he makes to challenge and mock Hezekiah's decision to follow God and not to surrender. So he's trying to cause, he's playing mental games with Hezekiah. He's trying to get him to doubt his trust in, God, in the God of Israel. And instead of recognizing the true God, Sennacherib had confidence in his armies and his physical dominance. And it's real easy to do that. He confidently brags of the victories and the conquests of the Assyrians. And why should Hezekiah believe that his God's any different than the gods of all these other lands? He would fare any better. So Sennacherib is very willing to make this a contest of power of each nation's God. Because that's what they did back then. If I beat you, my God's better than your God. And that's what Sennacherib is doing. Thinking that the current power advantage Assyria had was more than adequate. And from a human standpoint, you'd say, yeah, it is. You know, it, it is. In verse 13... Sennacherib asks a rhetorical question. Where is, are all these kings? Well, they're all dead. They're all gone. The answer that these kings are now God, gone, and just like you're going to be gone, Hezekiah. You know, Sennacherib's response is not much different from, than any unbeliever when they are confronted with the choice between something tangible, my army, I can see it, I can touch it, and trusting by faith in what God states will happen. This is something we all have struggled with from time to time. We can learn from this passage that it is always right to trust in the Almighty God rather than the tangible things that we can see and touch. This is brought out in John chapter 20, verse 29. When Jesus told Thomas after he rose, he said, Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who do not see yet believe. So we can learn from that. It's so easy to trust in physical things that we can see and touch. After Hezekiah received this second message from the Rabshakeh, we see in verse 14, his response. And this, I think, is a we can learn a lot from this. <clears throat> Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And I can just visualize this, you know. He went up and spread this letter before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. 
So the response of Hezekiah is shown here, and he really only has one possible option short of surrender, and that is turning to God. He spreads out the letter he had received from the Assyrians before the Lord in supplication. Now the action of spreading out the letter is symbolical, placing all our needs and all our problems at the feet of God, confident that God will come to his aid. And we can do that confident that God will come to our aid. And Hezekiah prays that God will provide the answer. You know, it's always good to begin with prayer, isn't it? Prayer reflects our dependence upon God. Without Him, we can't succeed. To work in our own effect, or to work in our own effort, and then when it fails, turn to God, is the wrong order. Let's start... Let's start with the right order. Because the nation had already tried the wrong order. They tried to seek an alliance with Egypt without following God's counsel. Now they were at the end of their options. But here Hezekiah gets the order right. The the prayer of Hezekiah addresses God with the highest honor. O God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. In this manner, he is stating that God is present with those in the city of Jerusalem. Where was the cherubim at that time? It was in the Ark of the Covenant that was in Jerusalem. And it sets God apart from any of the gods worshipped by the other nations that Sennacherib had just brought up. God was living and God was participative. He states that there are no other gods. You are the God. You alone. It's a strong statement of the monotheism of Judah, which was unique at the time. There were Other nations were not monotheistic. They were pretty much all polytheistic. Many gods. A god of this and a god of that. And he concludes by declaring the creative power of God. You have made heaven and earth. This statement further acknowledges that the Lord's power over all other gods and all other nations, including Assyria. God, you made all things. Therefore, all things are under your authority. Our God made everything. And everything is under his authority. You know, the driving reason, and we could spend a lot of time getting quotes on this. There are plenty available. The driving reason that men want to believe in the theory of evolution or believe atheism or agnosticism or a combination of all those kind of squished together is they do not want accountability for their moral lives. That's the bottom line. They want to live how they want to live without any accountability to anybody. And many have come out and said it even more bluntly than that. Because with accountability comes a responsibility and a moral limit to thoughts and actions. That's the driving reason people want to be this way. We go on in... 2 Kings 19, starting in verse 16. 
Here Hezekiah asked for the Lord to hear. He says, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of, the, of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their land. So he's not disputing that they have had great military success. And have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. That's the reason to ask God to act. So that all the nations, all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. In verse, seven, uh, verse 16, he asked for the Lord to hear. Now this is not to meant to imply that God wasn't aware of the events or he needed to be reminded or a plea, oh please hear because sometimes you don't. No, that's not what that's for. This is a recognition of his desire to bring God into the situation. The whole reason Hezekiah asked God for help is so that God will gain glory. Hezekiah was distressed by the blasphemous attitude of the Assyrians. The base of Hezekiah's concern was not for the welfare of himself and his country, even though that was key, I mean, that was big, but it was for the glory of God and his reputation in the world. And I had to think about that. How does that request line up with this example. Do I ask for God for things so that he will receive glory through what he does over any other benefit? It's worth thinking about as we approach God in prayer. Our, our prayer is that God would be glorified through what action he does. If he, if he um, saves someone who needs salvation, it's a glorious thing, but God receives the glory there. If he, if he, if he uh, takes someone who is ill and makes them well, it's not so that person will be well, it's so that God will receive the glory for doing that. That's the priority. And in verse 18, 17 and 18, he acknowledges what Assyria has done to the other nations. Now, the reason they've been successful is because God allowed it. But from, a, you know, but from a human standpoint, Assyria had a lot of power. And it was not due to the Assyrian gods. Their gods didn't give them power. It was merely created by man. Remember, the true God of the Bible was not made by men, but he is a spirit. God was not made by human hands or thought up by human minds. He's the alive and the ultimate authority in the universe. In verse 18, it says, you know, these nations have cast their gods into the fire, but they were the work of men's hands of wood and stone. Then there's that passage in Isaiah that kind of talks about the futility of making a god says a guy takes a log, cuts it in half, half of it he makes a god and worships it, and the other half he puts into the fire and cooks his meal. What's the difference? You know, it's 
all made by human minds. So in verse 19, Hezekiah states that the reason God should act is to vindicate his name and deliver his people. By saying that, he's also acknowledging, I can't do this. I don't have the power, I don't have the the wherewithal, the means to do it. Only you can accomplish this task, God. So Hezekiah's prayer was one of faith and confidence. And then Isaiah comes and gives the prophecy of Sennacherib in verse 20. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And I'm sure that once Hezekiah heard that, I bet he turned 100% of his attention on what Isaiah was saying. Right? Okay, this is it. Your prayer to me about Sennacherib and the king of Syria I have heard. And this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, O virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, O daughter of Jerusalem, whom you have mocked and reviled against whom you have raised your voice and lifted up your eyes to the heights against the Holy One of Israel. So this is, this is poetic parallelism that, that Isaiah is speaking out here. And it's looking upon the actions of Assyria with scorn. The disdain of the inhabitants of Jerusalem is an indication of the faith of the people. Unknown to Sennacherib, he is now dealing with a totally different enemy. He thought he had merely attacked another nation in his path, dealing with them like they had the others that he had conquered. Instead, he's dealing with the living God. Different game. His blasphemy was done openly and very publicly. And Sennacherib's contempt for God was great, and it was founded on ignorance. The result will be dramatic and will show that God is not to be mocked. He is to be worshipped. Now, the other thing we have to remember that's good to put into this context, those who lived in Nineveh, where Sennacherib had his headquarters, approximately 90 years earlier, the people in Nineveh properly responded to the message that God had given to him from the prophet Jonah. In Jonah 3.5 it states, The people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. So, everybody. I would think that Sennacherib would have at least had some exposure to this history and therefore some introduction to the God of Judah. I don't know, but if that's the case, it only heightens his mockery of God. We must remember that God is holy and he does not take lightly to those who blaspheme against him. I can only wonder how long he will tolerate those today that treat him in a similar manner. Again, the rejection and blasphemy, if it's not repented of, can only lead to judgment from God. Verse 23. 
By your messengers you have mocked the Lord. This is God talking. And you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and I dried up with the sole of my feet all the streams of Egypt. Again, the narrative continues to refer to the blasphemous approach of the Rabshakeh and the envoy from Assyria. They were convinced that their army was invincible. He relied upon his material might, and he thought a lot of himself. And today when we find the end of the Super Bowl, whoever wins, you're going to see from someone a similar attitude in what we have with Sennacherib. Not that they're going to be mocking God, but look at, look at verse 23. You go all the way 23 to 24. I dug, I drank, I dried up rivers, and I am the conqueror. I did it, I did it, I did it, I did it, I did it. The pride shown by the Assyrians is very much what you see if you also read their historical annals. They just, we did this, we did this, we were the greatest. They thought they could not be defeated. And boy, we see that in spades today. Then, starting in verse 25, God responds with power in a statement to his sovereignty that the Assyrians are but an instrument in the plan of God. Verse 25, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruin. God is in control. And he's saying, it's not your power, Sennacherib, or anyone else in Assyria that brought you the the victories. I planned and I allowed it. Yeah, God does allow heathen, godless nations to have victory. And we're going to see that a little later when we get to Babylon. God intended for Hezekiah and all who would read this account to understand this important truth. God is not subjected to time and space. He has a plan that will come to pass on everything that happens. And it all happens through the independent choices of men. But it happens because God determined it in eternity past. And if you were in the first service, Jim kind of said that a couple times this morning. And if you, uh, you know, it's consistent all through Scripture. Now, this concept can drive some people to wrong conclusions. Some would reason that if that's so, then God planned and determined evil, or God planned and determined sin and sorrow and all that goes along with that. But all we have to do is read Romans 1, and we don't go into looking at that whole thing, verses 16 to 32, it's very clear that man chose his path and therefore man is responsible for his actions. The sin of man was allowed by God. It did not catch God off guard. Sennacherib made his blasphemous statements from his 
own choice. But God planned it and knew it was going to happen. So through all of this, God is showing himself faithful to his people. Guys, I'm carrying out my plan. I'm sovereign. And we go on in verse 30, at verse 26. It says, While their inhabitants, shorn of strength and dismayed and confounded, have become like plants of the field, like tender grass, like grass of the housetops, blighted before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down, and you're going out, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put a hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way which you came. God is saying the reason, Sennacherib, you were so successful is because all those people you defeated, they were short of strength, or they were like the little wimps that lived down the street. They had little power. They were broken, and they were not capable to mount a defense. So that statement is a direct blow to the pride of the Assyrians and the Sennacherib who thought we're pretty powerful. Well, if you have an, uh, you know, if God allows it, and you have an 185,000 or a 200,000 uh, soldier army, and you're going against a town that has 5,000 people, I think I know probably who has the upper hand here. He is told that he didn't really do too much. You didn't do much, Sennacherib. I allowed this whole thing to happen. You only picked on people with little strength. It would be like the Kansas City Chiefs playing a local high school kid uh, team here. I think I know who would win. And that's, what he's, that's what he's comparing him to. So, Sennacherib, you shouldn't take any pride in this, I dug and I did this and I did this and I did that. You shouldn't take any pride in that. Then it goes on, you know, as, as grasses and plants cannot stand against the strength of a destructive wind or storm, so these people were conquered. The flat top of households of that land had very little earth to sustain grass for a long period of time, and so were the pe people he conquered. It shows how fragile those people were that Assyria conquered. It's quite a difference from the pride of Sennacherib. He claimed, I have the power. God said, you don't have any power. I, the living almighty God, am the source of all power and control. And this fit right within my plan. You know, it's not any different to those who live today. We think we have power. We think we have control. We think all that. Man hasn't really changed over the thousands of years since then. His heart is in the same place. Only the environment has changed. And then in verse 27, God states that I know everything about you, Sennacherib. I know the purpose of your actions, but it's all subject to me. And even your plans to overthrow Judah. You didn't catch me off guard. Again, it's a challenge to the pride of Sennacherib. Because he had shown great arrogance against God. And now, how is he going to be treated? Verse 28. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. 
I will put a hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. I'm going to treat you like I would a wild horse or an ox. I will place a hook in his nose of the king. Now, it's an illustration also of how the Assyrians treated their prisoners. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. They would be led around by a cord that was attached to a ring in the nose or the upper lip. And you'd all, you know, all of us would be, you know, hmm? I can't think of anything more yucky than that, but it's pretty good. But they were not treated with humanitarian courtesy. Now God says, guess what? You're going to be treated in the same way you treat these other people. It's figurative, but it's with the same effectiveness. So, with this, do you think Sennacherib will be compelled by this declaration? So, oh God, you're right, I better leave. No. No. Nothing is going to cause him to change course. Verse 29. And this shall be a sign for you. And this again is talking to uh, Hezekiah. This year eat what grows of itself. And in the second year what springs of the same. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. So God is telling Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem, you're going to eat. Remember what what um, the Rabshakeh said? He said, you're going to eat your dung and drink your urine. God says, no, you're going to eat. You're going to be fine. God assures them there will be provision. And this must have been a comfort. Looking at the city, uh, outside the city didn't give them the impression that there was going to be enough bounty to sustain them. Now it's interesting that three years are mentioned. In year one, what grows up naturally? Seed from a prior year's harvest that grew again the next year without being planted or cultivated. In year two, the food source will be very similar. However, in year three, they will sow seeds and cultivate and sow a harvest as normal. In year three, we also see a variety of produce and harvest of vineyards and fruit. God promised a harvest in year three is also a sign of his blessing. And often it took several years for a vineyard to yield a crop. I mean, a lot of years. You just don't plant a grape vineyard and have a crop the next year. But here we see it in the third year, so that's pretty quick. Now to us, to me, this seems like a long time to wait. I gotta wait three years? And again, it teaches me that I need to be patient. God will provide in the lean times, and it may take some time for normal to return. But we want things now. It's hard to wait. It's hard to wait. Like we said earlier, our culture is based on expediency. And this creeps into our spiritual lives as well. We must learn to wait on the Lord. I just wonder, as this rolled out in history, how patient the people were in year two. Year one, they're going, year two, come on. Did they learn patience? I don't know. Some probably did. Some probably struggled with it. Can we learn patience? Can I learn patience? 
only by trusting in the Lord, by studying his word and by seeing how he, he acts. Now, in looking at the passage, we are unsure of the timing of the years. It could be that it was already the fall and there had not been any sowing that spring, so the conditions for the first year were pretty much a conclusion. We don't know. But then in verse 31, there's going to be a remnant that will go out from Jerusalem. This is the sign of hope. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord, of, uh, the zeal of the Lord will do this. So the best part of the verse is that why it will happen. Why will there be a remnant? The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. What is zeal? It's enthusiastic diligence. God will not fail. God will be enthusiastically diligent. He will not fail. He also noticed there in verse 31, if you do this, people, then you're going to go out and there will be a remnant. No, it doesn't say that. There's no dependence on anything that people do. God will do it. You know, 2 Timothy 2.13 states this. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So here we see the faithfulness of God. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We don't think about God's zeal very often. I don't think I've ever heard a message on the zeal of God. It'd be a fun subject to study. Verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast a siege mound against it. There will be no military approach upon the city by Sennacherib. Not going to happen. Arrows will not fly. They will not be attacked by the enemy who is in the land. They will not be put under an Assyrian siege. You've got to remember that just recently the siege in Samaria lasted three years. Even though this is what Assyria promised would happen. I'm going to seize you. No, no, you're not. How do I know that? God said so. Verse 33. By the way that he came, the same shall return, and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. So they're going to return to their own land. Now, the return is not due to a lucky break. Wow, we got lucky there. No. It's the direct dealing of God on all involved. God was at work for his own sake and for the sake of the promises he made to David. All the cunning, the wealth, or the power could not stop Assyria. Only God. And the reason God is doing this is to bring about his glory that was sparked by the faith and the humility shown by the people. Verse 34 ends by 
referring to God's preserving them for David's sake. In 2 Samuel, God promised David a kingdom that would never end. Remember what happened to Samaria? They got decimated. It was done. It wasn't going to happen here. Now, why? Well, God promised it, and this is also going to be the kingdom that the Messiah will come and Jesus will lead. Yeah, there have been historical breaks in the physical Davidic kingdom, but it wasn't going to happen at this time. Then starting in, so that, I mean, that pronouncement, Hezekiah and the people must have just absolutely loved that. Now, we didn't have to, have to wait 20 years to see what happens next. Verse 35. And that night, that night, the angel of the Lord, the angel, one angel, we don't know who, we don't know if we have a name for him, one angel went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Bad sushi. Bad sushi. I think it was more than bad sushi. Then verse 36. I love this verse. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. I'm out of here. God at work to fulfill his prophecy. The angel of the Lord went out to do battle. There's a couple other passages if you want to look at what an angel of the Lord can do. Look at Exodus 12, 12 and 13. What the angel of the Lord do at Passover. 2 Samuel 24, 1. 2 Samuel 24, 15. When God empowers his angels, they have awesome power and unlimited author ultimate authority. Just think, one angel struck 185,000 people in one night. Remember the scene in the Garden of Eden at the betrayal of Christ? Peter sliced off the ear of one of the priests. Christ put it back on. No one ever thought anything about that. If I'd have been that priest, I wonder what I thought. We don't have any record of that. But after he did that, Jesus said, Hey, Peter, chill. Don't you know I could bring 12 legions of angels at any time? Or how much is a legion? That was in Matthew 26, 53, by the way. Think of the power that Jesus could have brought down. Not only his own power, but called 12 legions. We don't know exactly how much a legion is, but the general consensus is a legion is 6,000. So 12 legions would be a minimum of 72,000 angels. And that, you don't have to hang your hat on, oh, it's 72,000. Basically, I can bring anything down. You know, I can bring six legions of angels, 12 legions of angels. 
I think 72,000 angels could have taken care of that little band anytime they wanted if one angel in one night can do 185,000. God has power. We tend to think, even though we know differently, we tend to think that that uh, everything is going to happen naturally. Well, not everything does. This was a supernatural event. Now, also notice that not all the army was slain. Some men rose up early in the morning. Oh, look. And then they went back home with Sennacherib to Nineveh. It would have been an interesting report that he would have made. Kind of very reminiscent of the first Passover in Egypt when the firstborn of those who did not have the mark over their doorposts were killed, including livestock. And we see clearly that God is the God who controls history. Now, there are always people who are going to say, oh, well, this is how it happened through a natural phenomenon. There was a wind that... uh, I don't know if it was this one or the Passover that they said, oh yeah, there was a volcano that erupted over somewhere in the Mediterranean and, and the wind came down and asphyxiated all 185,000 of them or something like that. That's what people will say because they don't want them to, there to be a miraculous event. But the verb strike down, I mean, we know it's supernatural. The verb strike down does imply a disease, but we don't know what sure, for sure what happened. The interesting thing is that just prior to this event, the Assyrians were poised to destroy. Instead, they were the ones who were destroyed. Now, the other thing we can, a point that can be made, because there was a literal fulfillment of the taking away of the Assyrian army. God said, it's going to leave. It's going to go. We can also expect a literal fulfillment of the prophecies made by Jesus and the prophets of God throughout Scripture that are still going to come. They're going to be literally fulfilled. And I read somewhere, and I couldn't find it again, but Sennacherib, when he went back, there's a record of him returning from Jerusalem but it's very, very bland in what he had to say. He did not admit defeat because that's not what they did. There are pictographs yeah. on walls in Nineveh, and <coughs> I was looking at looking it up, and um, they said that it is so um, nonspecific that it, it it almost looks like they won or something. Oh yeah, well he, they're going to say defeat. No, those guys didn't admit defeat even if they were defeated because that didn't give a good look to all the people in Nineveh, right? Or to your God. But Sennacherib, whether he wanted to admit it or not, felt a little bit of the power of the living God. And that was a whole lot different than the idol gods worshipped by the nations that they destroyed and he says, ah, this God's nothing, this God's nothing, we've burnt them up. Oh, this is different. But Isaiah, verse 30, or not Isaiah, verse 37 is very clear. Sennacherib didn't get it. 
And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, when he returned to Nineveh, he went to worship and pray to his god, the god who clearly could not defeat a nation of far inferior forces and power. This little nation, dinky little nation. Well, I'm still going to worship my God. The attempt to destroy the children of God and Israel as a nation absolutely miserably failed for Zanacharip. But he was still holding on to this belief in a God that didn't exist. The people, we have a hard time accepting the fact that we're, you know, if you're a non-believer, you have a hard time letting go of that. Hard time letting go of that. I have to, I have to. No, we need to be, you know, God needs to open their hearts and their minds. This is the God of the Bible. This is the true God. That didn't happen with Sennacherib. Instead, what happened? Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped to the land of Ararat. Yeah, that's the land where Noah's ark landed. And Esharadon, his son, reigned in his place. So instead, Sennacherib was assassinated by his own sons 20 years later, but he was assassinated by his sons. Kind of quite a contrast between the protection from God over, over those who seemingly are with from those who had little power to the one who claimed to have immense power. Now next week we will probably go back into the Psalms. But just to let you know, we're not through with Hezekiah. He has two more major events in his life. One is he will become ill and be extremely distraught and ask for more life. And God will give him 15 more years. And then he's going to do some stupid stuff with Babylon that's going to end up causing some real problems. But just to let you know, a little bit of a a preview so you don't worry about this or think about it. Probably the reason why Hezekiah was so distraught when he was ill to the point of death was not because he was going to die, even though that would be distraught enough, but it was because he did not have an heir. And he, that was a big deal. And so we find that God gave him 15 more years and when he died his son Manasseh who was a horrible king took over and Manasseh was 13 years old when he began to reign so that was a lot of a lot of people think oh you know he had such a hard time accepting his death well that was probably doesn't say it set text doesn't say that but that was probably the driving force behind his distraught that he was going to die. And Isaiah said, put your final estate into, uh, you know, make your final plans because you're done. And then God gave him 15 more years. And he ended up with an heir who is in the line of Christ, but it was a horrid king. That's for another time, a couple weeks down the road. Let's pray.